I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this program, we bring you a special event recording. Jeffrey Wilson is joined by Rory Medcalf and Jennifer Jacket to explore the ideas put forward in his recent paper from the Quad Tech Network's QTN series. Welcome to this special event by the National Security College here at the Australian National University in Canberra. I'm Rory Metcalf, the head of the college, and it's a real pleasure this evening to welcome you to this uh, this webinar, this virtual discussion of an important new report published by the National Security College uh, as part of our Quad Tech Network series on the role of battery value chains in national security and what quad countries can do about it. In a moment, I'll introduce our speakers, uh, Dr. Jeff Wilson from the Perth US Asia Centre and Jen Jacket, a Sir Roland Wilson Scholar at the National Security College. Before we begin proceedings, uh, it's also, of course, uh, customary here at the Australian National University to acknowledge and celebrate the traditional custodians of the land uh, on which we meet or from which we're recording our event this evening. And of course, here in Canberra, uh, that is the Ngunnawal people. Uh, And so I acknowledge uh, their elders past, present and emerging. I might just say a few more words about our speakers and and frame the the sequence of the next hour so you know what to expect and when to start um, firing your, your questions at us. So Dr. Jeff Wilson, is the research director at the Perth US Asia Centre. And Jeff is no stranger to these issues or to the National Security College, uh, but has been a key research collaborator with us on the Quad Tech Network. And Jennifer Jacket, uh, Jen Jacket is a Sir Roland Wilson PhD scholar here at the National Security College where her research is focusing on uh, US-China technology competition and really the contest for leadership in that strategic domain. The Quad Tech Network, which is the, um, if you like, the the sponsoring series for these events, is uh, an initiative uh, supported by the Australian Government, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, under which the National Security College, over the past 12 months or more, in fact, has built essentially a library of research and policy ideas about how quad countries can collaborate on areas of technology, whether it's in cyber security and other critical technologies, whether it's in critical minerals. And now this evening, uh, we'll hear about battery value chains. And um, Jeff, before I start, I sort of, I don't usually do this, but I thought I would note, I brought a battery along this evening just to give us a prop and just to remind us... (laughs) Um, this um, uh, lithium uh, iron battery, I think, out of my um, out of my lawnmower, actually, just to remind us that this is actually, in many ways, a seemingly a mundane, everyday technology that um, is part of our lives, and it's very hard for us to think about uh, battery technology as a national security issue. Maybe it's a climate issue. Maybe it's an energy issue. What I'd like to do um, to get the conversation started is to ask you to introduce some of the key arguments from your paper and explain up front why on earth we should care about this this issue in the context of security. Mm. Uh, Thanks so much, Rory. And look, thanks everyone for having me along to this event. Um, Rory, I'm also very glad that you've moved over to a battery-powered lawnmower from the old two-stroke model that I grew up with in a suburban Australian upbringing, which is terrible for your your lungs. But... um, Look, the real important question for a discussion like this, 
has to start with the elephant in the room is that why would we consider something like batteries a critical technology? We would usually think about 5G or undersea telecommunications or something like that. You know, batteries are two centuries old as a technology, which makes them older than the blast firms that revolutionised steelmaking during the Industrial Revolution. Um, they're ubiquitous for decades. We're talking on devices that have batteries in them now. Um, but the important thing to remember here is that tech doesn't have to be recently invented to be critical. And batteries actually satisfy the two criteria that defines what makes a critical technology critical. They're economically important, but they also face risks to supply security. Now, I'll start with the economic importance, because for batteries, that's fundamentally bound up with the global energy transition towards clean energy sources. Um, there is no way that we're going to be able to achieve net zero carbon targets without batteries. And this is because they provide two really critical functions in clean energy systems. They allow us to electrify our transport systems to substitute oil out, which, you know, electric vehicles need a battery to store the electricity. But they're also important in terms of load management for intermittent renewables like solar and wind. So energy storage systems are essential for renewables that only produce energy when the sun's shining or the wind's blowing to properly displace coal and gas in our grids. So what we're seeing is as the world's moving to restructure their national energy systems towards net zero, we're going to need a significantly increased supply of batteries supplied very soon. Um, some of the best estimates out of the World Economic Forum suggest that global demand for batteries, it will increase tenfold by 2030 in just a decade, and it's going to continue to grow for decades after that. So without a secure and indeed rapidly expanding supply of batteries, there can't be a renewable energy transition. Unfortunately, though, there are good reasons to worry about whether the global value chains that currently make batteries are fit for purpose to deliver the goods. Um, and this is because at present, there's a lot of concentration in the battery industry, which creates choke points in the supply chain. Um, some of the minerals that go into batteries come from a single producer. So while lithium supplies, the main components, are fairly diverse, two-thirds of the world's, world's cobalt, graphite, vanadium and rare earths comes from a single source. And in the midstream of the value chain, the part that turns battery minerals into usable components, China has monopoly control. Um, the data we have in the report shows that China accounts for almost 90% of battery mineral refining and two-thirds of the world's supply of active materials, the chemicals that go into battery cells. Um, and what economic geographers often call this an hourglass value chain. There are multiple supplies of lithium at the bottom and a lot of countries that make batteries at the top, but you have this kind of choke point in the centre. What this means is that our current battery value chains are very fragile because something that goes wrong in that central choke point could bring the entire value chain down. Um, and there's good reason to fear that this could occur. You know, we could have some kind of natural interruptions that create global supply. Um, and if we just have a look at the current issues around semiconductor shortages, we can see how real this can be. Um, we might also have political interruptions, such as increasing trade wars and economic decoupling affecting the value chain. Um, we could even see the weaponization of batteries, where governments withhold supply in an effort to diplomatically coerce others. Um, and indeed, there's form for this, um, as China withheld the supply of rare earth minerals to Japan in 2010 for two months during a diplomatic dispute. Um, these value chain risks mean the world need two things from the battery industry to provide a secure footing for the renewable energy transition. The first is that we need a very rapid expansion of battery value chains to support surging demand. But second, when we build out these new value chains, we also need to build more diversity into them so that we don't continue to face these choke points and supply risks. Um, there's a couple of options for how to build back with more diversity as battery industry expands. But the one in which we focus on in this um, National Security College Quad Tech Network report is the prospect for building battery value chains between the quad countries. Now, the quad, which is an emerging strategic grouping between Australia, India, Japan and the US, might at first seem a bit of an odd institution to tackle the batteries problem. Um, you know, those who have long memories would know that the Quad initially emerged as a maritime security forum over a decade ago. So why is this security group in getting interested in batteries? But there are actually a couple of good reasons why the Quad would be a very ideal vehicle through which we could achieve the goal of diversifying battery value chains. Um, the first one is that the economic complementarities are there. 
Australia is already the world's major producer of battery minerals um, and is emerging for some of those midstream chemicals. Um, Japan and the United States have significant battery technologies, and because they're large consumers, they also have the capital to finance new projects. For its part, India has a very competitive manufacturing industry that can compete at cost when producing battery cells. On the political side, the Quad governments have also all recognised the problem. And in the last few years, each of them has put in place a national strategy for developing new battery industries. So government recognition of the challenge and support for the solution is already there in these four countries. And finally, we're seeing the Quad making repeated commitments to cooperate on critical technologies, um, most notably through um, commitments around semiconductors made at the Quad Summit last month. And so the Quad's now looking for other industries in which they could implement this commitment to improve critical technology value chains. And look, so what I'd argue is that this means batteries are a real ideal candidate for the next step in the Quad's cooperation for critical tech, and that the Quad is a real ideal candidate for the next step in how to build better battery value chains. Um, what we need to do next is to take these national battery strategies from the four countries and link them up in some way to capitalise on the synergies between the four governments involved. Um, that's an outline of the report. Thanks, Rory, for having me tonight. Look, thanks, Jeff, and that really opens up a whole lot of questions. What we'll do, I think, with the time we have, we've only got this hour until um, 7 o'clock here in Canberra, and I want to save time to take questions and comments from the group in the virtual room. But what I'll do before that is throw to our discussant. Um, Jen, I know you're going to have some, um, some tricky questions for, uh, for Jeff, uh, drawing on your own uh, emerging research, but also drawing on the, I think, the fast-moving events in this space, you know, the, the quad meeting, for example, in the United States. So I might hand to you, Jen, for um, a couple of questions to Jeff in the first instance. Thank you very much, Rory. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Jeff, for those opening remarks. Perhaps I can pick up on a couple of the um, strategic or contextual factors before we delve a little bit deeper into some of the issues that you raised. So as you mentioned, since your report was published in August, we've, of course, seen Quad leaders meet in person for the first time in Washington and consolidate their growing momentum for cooperation across a range of issues, including climate change, COVID-19 response and recovery, and critical technologies. And in fact, as part of the outcomes, cooperation around technology supply chains, getting to the issues you raise in your paper, was a key outcome where Quad leaders committed to better understanding vulnerabilities in supply chains, especially in relation to semiconductors, but also potentially in other areas too. There's also been other strategic dynamics um, or developments that have occurred in this time. Of course, we've seen Australia, the US and UK announce a new trilateral security partnership, AUKUS. Um, and while that's entirely distinct from the Quad in both scope and magnitude, I think a common undercurrent between the two groupings is how like-minded partners can really collaborate to take advantage of the promise of critical technologies. And then coming over the horizon too on the climate front, we're soon expecting world leaders and negotiators to meet for the COP26 international climate talks amid a global push towards renewables. So I think in the context of all of these developments, your paper on securing battery value chains really gets to the heart of multiple issues of global consequence, but directly relevant to the Quad's agenda, not only around critical technologies, but also adaptation to climate change. And it, prevents a, it provides a very practical and actionable path forward. So I might draw you out on a couple of the contextual factors before we jump to the details of the policy recommendations. I think you've already explained quite clearly why it is that we should care about batteries as a critical technology issue. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit more on why it's an urgent issue for the Quad to deal with amid quite a broad and evolving agenda that they have. Um, this is a really interesting issue because some of these issues have been around for a long time. If we had some of the data we have in the report, if we'd done that five or ten years ago, it would have looked exactly the same. So there is this question of why are we recognising this now? 
Um, and certainly some of it is, is connected to the accelerating countries that have adopted net zero targets. And then once the government does that, they have to go and look at their energy system and say, well, how many more renewables do we have to hook up? How many more EVs do we need? And then that starts turning into numbers for how many batteries we have to go into all of that, which then compared to what we've been used to has an extra zero on the end of it and people start paying more attention for that reason. But I also think there's a political element caught up in the Quad and AUKUS and things that you mentioned, is that there is increasing tensions over economic linkages in supply chains. Um, the COVID pandemic has kind of been a bit of a dry run for us, where that wasn't driven by politics, it was driven by a natural event, but we've there's a semiconductor shortage. It's seen global automakers have to cut their production by a third because there's no chips to go in cars. Um, we've seen this across a whole lot of tech industries, try buying a router or a mobile phone that's not an Apple one at the moment, for example. And I think that's drawn a lot of people's attention to, well, if that's what happened during COVID, when we we're all trying to keep supply chains open, what would happen if some of the geopolitical issues, particularly involving China, led to a political attempt to actually shut those down? So you have governments on one hand enacting big, ambitious energy system transition policies that are going to need these batteries, but then a real heightened awareness of the fact that these could be it's working, but it could be very fragile and it wouldn't take a lot of politics to really upset that transition. And so when I think you get those two things coming together in quarter three, 2021, this is really why now is a kind of moment where the the economic agenda, the national security agenda and the climate agenda have all coalesced um, to, to get us to where we are today. Mm. That actually reminds me of uh, the Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's remarks at the ANU Crawford Leadership Forum in September and he talked about the return of strategic competition and the blurring of lines between economics, politics and national security. And he said that the economic landscape globally is being defined by a China that's more willing to use its economic weight as a source of political pressure. And I think that speaks to some of the broader geoeconomic factors that are relevant to the analysis in your paper about insecurities in global value chains. I guess on that issue, um, have we seen any intent by countries to actually leverage these near monopolies in the battery value chain uh, for strategic gain? Mm, it's This is an interesting one. So we certainly in the battery industry, some batteries, particularly high performance ones, use rare earth minerals, um, which are part of, the cap, uh, part of the chemistry that when the battery cell is made up, not necessarily the ones in your phones, but more industrial applications. And there was an incident in 2010 when during a diplomatic dispute over the Senkaku Islands, um, China cut off supply of rare earth minerals to Japan, the, at the time the world's largest manufacturer of batteries, which is Panasonic, for two months in September, October 2010. Um, we have also seen there's been no direct threats made um, more recently, particularly around, say, Australian lithium, which gets processed into cathode materials in China and then gets sold to Korea, which, which makes a battery out of it. Um, but we have also seen a lot of kind of strategic protectionism in some industries over the last 12 months. Many might be familiar with trade bans on medical products that happened during the COVID pandemic, which caused a lot of issues and certainly the scramble for vaccines that continues around the world today. Um, we've also seen China's willingness to use trade sanctions as a form of diplomatic coercion. We're up to 10 countries now and counting, and Australia currently has $70 billion of our exports to China covered by various coercive trade sanctions today. So while we haven't seen this play directly in the battery sector for a decade, the risk is certainly there, and the political winds, as the Treasurer points out, that are blowing around that kind of activity are getting much stronger. If it was to hit in batteries then the question would be, well, how would, what would our, our net zero by 2050 commitments be worth if there was no batteries for the EVs and no energy storage systems for the wind turbines? Mm. Yeah, so the risks are very real to those supply chains. Um, we might now turn to the main focus of the discussion, which is around the policy recommendations and try to unpack those a little bit more, especially for some of our policy stockholders online to understand how we might operationalise some of these ideas. Um, so, Rory, I'm happy to turn back to you or get the discussion going. Yeah, look, thanks, Jen. I will come back to a bit further on, but I think look, it might just be good um, uh, in a moment 
Uh, Jeff, for you just to give us a, a snapshot of your policy recommendations, and I'm going to challenge you on one or two of those before I go to the, the group. Um, and just a reminder to everyone, if you have a question or a comment, can you please put it in the chat, uh, the chat box, the chat function, uh, which should be at the bottom of your screen there, and um, I will get to those and um, try to uh, sort of read out your questions in order. Um, if you would rather remain anonymous in asking your question, that's fine. This is being recorded and um, will be put online. But uh, in that case, please indicate when you ask your question that you'd like to remain anonymous. But while you're thinking of all of your questions, um, I will ask you, Jeff, to talk a little bit about, you know, ideally what to do. I mean, it's great to say that the Quad should focus on this uh, on this issue. Uh, and there's already hints of that in uh, the messages coming out of the Quad Summit recently. But any kind of alignment of activity by significant countries on an issue that has a bearing on uh, our economic prosperity, on the, the 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 commercial decisions of the private sector, um, you know, in the name of national security, is pretty hard to operationalise. What realistically should quad countries actually do? Mm. This, I think, Rory, may be one of a good example of a low-hanging fruit for us in this space, though your comment that getting that economic security connection working in policy is quite right. The reason it's a low-hanging fruit is that all the Quad countries already have national policies in place. Um, uh, Japan has had one for almost a decade for this, Australia for a couple of years around uh, ex developing and moving up the value chain into batteries, India three years ago, and in June this year with the Biden uh, Biden um, administration in the US had a new executive order around critical supply chains, which was pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, critical minerals, and batteries was one of the top four that the Biden administration identified as a problem. So that's that's an indicator of how seriously it's being taken. The challenge here, though, is to actually get those national strategies to link up because they were all written in a national context. This is what we have to bring to the table on promoting a national interest. But when we look at the battery value chain, it is actually the sum of the, the sum of the parts needs to be brought together to get the whole. Particularly what I'd be talking about is none of the four countries can do it on their own, but there are opportunities where you could have divide up this complex eight-stage value chain with Australia doing certain parts, India doing certain parts, Japan doing certain parts, and the US doing certain parts. And that requires a lot denser strategic thinking about commercial diplomacy than I think we're used to in a lot of countries where we would go to a trade promotion agency like Austrade in Australia and say, can you please get investors into the Australian battery sector? We've really got to think about, it's not a bilateral thing, but actually how, how can we get bits of the jigsaw puzzle that only makes sense if all four of them are lined up together? And that really requires a level of political leadership from the top that you could get through the working groups that have been announced at the most recent Quad Summit to actually line our four national ducks up so the pieces of the puzzle fit together. What about the question, um, Jeff, that, uh, you know, it, it's nice to come up with a very neat division of labour among Quad countries, but, you know, this is working against, uh, I guess, you know, global market imperatives. There, there could be countries that are actually better placed than Quad countries to be part of, um, you know, a diversified um, value, value chain, not, and not necessarily China either. Um, and also a country like Australia, uh, you know, politically may not want to always be positioned at the, um, if you like, the raw materials uh, end of the chain only. So um, how would you reconcile those thoughts? Look, I, I certainly wouldn't want to offer the offer of the Quad in any exclusive terms or the only exclusive, exclusive club. There's, there's a number of other countries in the region that could make a contribution to this as well. Korea has a significant role to play. Indonesia for some minerals processing. You know, even the United Kingdom has actually got some serious technological capabilities in this. So this wouldn't necessarily have to be a quad-only play, but it would have to be. But one of the reasons we look to the quad is because the quad is an institution that has a political win behind it to achieve this in ways that we're not seeing elsewhere. If we look around the world, it is the quad through its commitments to supply chain and, and taking steps in that domain, which is the intergovernmental group that's willing to take this the furthest. Um, and we have had an issue when we look at things like batteries or rare earths, 
where these problems have been known for a long time, probably a decade. And as, as one former government official put, put it to me, they've been widely admired but rarely acted upon. And so what is it in terms of a political tailwind that we can get to elevate that into the space of action? And, and the quad is, it strikes me, given the division of labour and given the fact that this is so central to what the expanded quad agenda after this year's summits is attempted to do, that this is, is not the only, but it's certainly one of the best ways that we can put some of that political momentum behind a practical thing which will benefit national security and will benefit climate at the same time. Thanks, Jen. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, it seems to me like some of the policy proposals you have around an MOU between quad countries um, and also establishing a dialogue, they're really about getting those bureaucratic foundations right and connecting the relevant parts of the bureaucracy um, with the right level of priority to establish important habits of cooperation in this area. I guess a couple of the questions that I had around um, formalising it in that way is where might the Quad countries first focus their efforts as part of an MOU uh, or a dialogue? And then the second question is, who else needs to be involved? Clearly, industry has a really big role to play in any outcomes around batteries, um, as do other levels of government potentially. So who are the key players that need to be a part of this conversation uh, should the Quad take something like this forward? Yeah. No, look, um, we certainly, and I'd start with the observation regarding cooperation through MOUs, is that there are MOUs and there are MOUs. Um, and I think a lot of people who've worked in the international policy space would, would be aware that some are, some are more substantive than others here. But what we're really talking about is taking, there's certainly already some bilateral MOUs, Australia, US, Australia, uh, India. There is an existing equivalent in the Japan-Australia Free Trade Agreement, which actually has an ongoing resource security cooperation committee involved in it. But what we're really talking about here is having is, is taking the discussion beyond what we often do with these with these where we get some scientists from each side and they do a bit of a, a study tour and exchange, but really thinking about how we develop policy. So when the Australian government makes policy for promoting the battery industry, are we thinking, are those policies aligned to where our businesses are saying, we could do something with India here, we could do something with Japan there? Is that first and foremost in front of mind? Um, the other thing is, however, there are policy levers that can be deployed. Um, just for the Australian case for this audience, has recently been announced that uh, Export Finance Australia, our equivalent of an Exim Bank, now has um, $2 billion of a, a facility to provide various forms of support to projects in the critical mineral industry. So that would be things including batteries, um, um, critical minerals processing, rare earths and stuff like this. So that's the new policy lever that we've got at our disposal that we didn't have a few months ago or didn't have at the time I wrote the report. It's a recent announcement that we could actually be thinking, well, when Export Finance Australia needs to decide on which projects it's going to back, something we could use that as a criterion for that, something that lined up within Australia, India, Japan within a quadrilateral framework would be something that would, when we're selecting our projects and how we give that support to strategic industries, we'd put that as a filter that would come over the top and, and discuss that with our counterparts. Indeed, there's certainly a lot of openness for then when India makes it to its manufacturing strategy, when Japan does that to its new economic security ministry that's been established, that we can all, we all have a little bit of a lever, but we all pull our lever in the same way to row a collective vote. And Jeff, you mentioned that there's already been a couple of agreements in a bilateral context um, with Australia and the US, Australia and India. Are there lessons that we can learn uh, from some of those agreements and the outcomes that they've been able to achieve to establish that broader quad cooperation? Mm -hmm. Look, an, an observation looking at this is in that we probably have to really upgrade our ambition and the density of involvement in how we do a lot of technology cooperation when we're moving into critical tech issues. And, and that's true of batteries. It's also true of other things around 5G and semiconductors that will be featured in, in this NSC series as well. The traditional way that governments for, for 30, 40 years have done technology cooperation is they have an MOU and then they get some scientists to have a meeting and share notes. Um, and that's, that, that is useful, and there's certainly been, through some of Australia's MOUs in critical minerals, a lot of cooperation between Geosciences Australia, our geologic survey, um, and other countries, and some um, university academics who develop minerals processing things. 
But what we're fundamentally talking about here for batteries, and it's the same discussion that is being had about semiconductors at the moment, and it's the same discussion that's being had about 5G, is actually taking that from a kind of pure R&D sense to moving into a commercial space rather than just inventing a better battery and then hoping the market will take it up. What we're really trying to do here is actually engage in strategic industrial policy. How can we get those technologies deployed at scale, which is the cost of tens of billions of dollars by companies between Australia, US, Japan, anyone else that might be commercially relevant in in an international commercial deal. And so what it requires is it taking it beyond the scientists, so to speak. Um, We actually have to get a lot of, and that means there's a lot more people in the room. Businesses have to be involved in a way they haven't been in the past and a broader set of bureaucratic agencies on our side as well. So it's no longer just something for Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or ours trade offices. Brings in industry, brings in national science agencies, brings in, in some cases, even state governments where, say, in Australia, Western Australia is the epicentre of these battery plays and therefore they need to be brought in as well. So I think we need a higher ambition and more inside the tent if we're going to elevate from science to strategy in getting value out to these kind of MOUs. I've got one more question, Jen. You might have another one too, and then we'll go to the um, go to the group. Did you have anything else, Jen, at this stage? The only point I was going to make around strategic industrial policies, of course, at times where competing uh, economically with our friends and partners. So sometimes there are tensions and trade-offs that need to be managed in establishing an agreement like that, but those things can be worked through in time. Rory, I'll hand back to you. Yeah, look, thanks. And just one last thought for me before I go to some of the excellent questions we've got in the chat, um, the chat box there. Um, and that is, Jeff, noting as I was sort of, you know, reflecting on my own battery here, thankfully we're not talking about um, plutonium today because that would be a bit more awkward. But, um, you know, how sensitive is the technology that we're talking about here? I think in many ways, you know, uh, battery technology varies, seems to vary enormously from from the very rudimentary and basic to, I guess, increasingly, you know, valuable IP that's going to provide all sorts of uh, advantage to uh, those countries that, that that are willing to invest and innovate. Um, how sensitive is the technology, would you say, from a strategic point of view? Mm, depends where the battery's going, Rory. Yeah. Um, there is one level, particularly in some high-tech industrial applications, particularly some of the more efficient TVs at the cutting edge of that, where we do need better, we do need to build a better mousetrap. And that's going to involve new chemistries and new industrial processes that will be protected IP that's important. But when we put a climate lens over the top of the battery industry, we really just need a hell of a lot more batteries. And that does mean in the cheap ones. Um, In fact, one of the largest global use cases of batteries in the next decade is not going to be the high-tech EV like the Tesla or something that I think a lot of us think about, but it's actually going to be in developing countries. And this is where India comes in, is electric motorbikes or electric rickshaws for transport um, in a lot of cities where I'm sure if if anyone spent time in a lot of uh, major urban cities in places like India or Indonesia, there's a lot of local air pollution. Now, an electric rickshaw doesn't need a particularly advanced battery. It probably even needs a simpler battery than the one in our laptop or smartphone, but it needs a monstrous volumes of it, and they have to be produced at a cost that's going to be affordable for those people who are going to use it. So at the other end of the market, the tech challenge is about bringing the cost down. How can we make a $100 battery a $50 battery? How can we make a $50 battery a $5 battery so that everyone in around the world is able to actually put one in their vehicles? A $100,000 Tesla is going to be no use for the climate if we can't disseminate it. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting technology play which has a combination of the very high and the very low, but we shouldn't actually lose sight of that low end part because we need a huge increase in volumes or we're simply never going to be able to achieve net zero without it. And in your quad research, you don't necessarily uh, play favourites there with, with with where a quad uh, value chain should go, high, low, the lot? In, the, in terms of a quad play, there is a definite space um, for India here. Um, one of the advantages India brings to the quad is that it's had a huge market. It'll be a huge market for these batteries to go into its electric vehicle industry, which is skewed towards small personal transportation like motorbikes. 
Um, but also its manufacturing industry that's extremely low cost, much cheaper than alternatives in China or Southeast Asia. So if we're trying to get a $100 battery and make it for $30, it won't be the world's highest tech battery, but India will be able to do that and will be able to do it at a scale that 10, 20 times larger than what we've currently got. So India is going to be a really important partner in terms of scaling up existing battery technology so we can get one in every vehicle around the world over the next 10 years. Um, and, and indeed, that's something that makes a quad play um, attractive because of that ability to scale and reduce costs a lot is probably going to, I suspect in the long run, going to make a bigger climate difference than uh, Australia and Japan working on a very bleeding edge battery that goes into five or 10 special applications. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What I might do is uh, invite um, two or three uh, of our audience to, to put their questions to you and the questions can be uh to jeff but also to to jen if you uh can jump in i'll I'll actually um nominate a couple of people and invite you to read out your own question put it in your own words um i'm actually going to begin with uh ravi uh ravi bhatia and maybe each of you can introduce yourselves as you go but ravi you've got several very good questions and comments there i'm afraid i'm only going to give you one so if you could maybe Pitch one of your questions and comments, please, at our speakers. Look, I, I am a very strong supporter of, of this proposal. So it's more of a statement than a question. It is we have to proceed in this direction. And it, it's going to take time. You know, setting up a refining capacity, for example, takes longer than setting up manufacturing capacity. And the issue would be simply how do we finance it in Australia quickly? An obvious source is the super funds because they invest in large, long-term returns projects. And I think they have plenty of cash. So if they provide the seed capital and we get going, we can raise the money on global markets. And Ravi, just for the for uh, just so that we know um, who I know, I know you, but just so that our speakers know you, maybe introduce yourself as well. Uh, I am, uh, and uh, what should I say? Uh, I'm from India originally, and I came to Australia 40 years ago, and I've done a few things here and there. I have participated in break of the, of the monopolies in the telecom sector earlier, several years ago. And uh, uh, I just enjoy being here and contributing in a positive way to the society. We'll be taking your investment advice shortly, I think. Thank you very much. So Ravi's question about capital. I'm going to go now oh. to a question from... Uh, Amanda Watson, Dr. Amanda Watson, if you're there uh, and you can read out your question, that would be fantastic. Oh, sure. Yes. It was just about the battery technology. I was wondering, mm. but I, subsequent to my typing it, Jeff and Jen had a bit of a discussion about that. So, oh, you, well, you've still got the floor. So if you want to elaborate at some point or push push the um, debate a bit further, please do. Oh, no, that's okay. I just wondered... Uh, whether it was the whether it was relevant that the battery technology hadn't evolved much over time in terms of the supply chains, whether that was relevant. Thanks. Thank you, Amanda. Um, and look, I'll now go to um, to uh, I'll get it to Steve Fanner if that's all right. Steve, uh, colleague from ANU. Hi, Rory. Thanks for that. Uh, I just had a question. Hearing Jeffrey talking about the big tech challenge being in relation to cost. 
And just in relation to that, how big do you see the tech challenge being in relation to cleaning up the uh, process of extracting and refining rare earths, which is another uh, hurdle to be overcome, of course? Thanks. Thanks. I'm, and I'm going to take one, a fourth question because I'm sure that you can you can handle four, uh, Jeff and Jen, um, especially since um, Amanda's was somewhat addressed already. And I'll go to Michael uh, Michael Schmidt Learman. Uh, thanks, Rory. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Perfect. Look, uh, just a quick question, I guess, around the rare earths. I'm obviously looking at your chart there of the dominant suppliers. And really the question is, you know, how easy is it to displace China from that uh, from that graph? Mm. Okay. Jim, we'll go to you first, Jeff, and then, Jen, you've got a, um, a smorgasbord to uh, choose from. Oh, thank, thank, thanks, Rory. And look, I think a way to try and bind some of those questions to, together is to, to kind of pose the obverse for a second, which I hadn't done in my initial comments, which is to ask, why is it that we have these monopolies, which in this industry is a Chinese monopoly in the first place? You know, why is it that all of the midstream of the battery value chain is done in China and the processing of rare earths? There's probably two reasons for that. Um, one of them has to do, and, and certainly for years, had to do with environmental standards, where this was something that, while we could do them in an environmentally uh, defensible way in Australia, other producers in other countries were not so constrained by their environmental um, local standards. And some of you may have heard about the Baotu um, Toxic Lake, which is a giant tailings dam in Inner Mongolia in China, which, can which is an ecological disaster uh, produced by its rare earths monopoly. All of the radioactive materials is just left to sit in a giant lake of dystopian proportions. Um, another factor as well is industrial policy support. Um, for a very long time, the Chinese government has made uh, having these industries as a strategic focus for their industrial policy. Um, and this is particularly through either state-owned enterprises who receive resources to develop these technologies at scale, or indeed through the state-owned banking system, um, where companies can get access to capital on much cheaper terms than they could on international markets. Um, lots of people in the battery industry will tell you that they have to raise capital, even if they can get access to some of these new green bonds, for example, where you can raise capital and if it's for a, an environmentally sustainable industry, you get it at a cheaper interest rate. Um, their borrowing costs are multiple times higher than what a Chinese national champion SOE is able to get from the Chinese banking system. And so that means that that is what's driven that to this outcome. But what it also means is it is a result of regulatory policy. It's not, there, there is an alternative. It's not some underlying economic factor means that these value chains must go through China and can only go through China because it's more competitive. It's more competitive because the Chinese government decides it wants to be competitive. But that equally means we can make ourselves more competitive by making those same sets of decisions. And now, obviously, um, these as governments like Australia and the US and Japan and India aren't going to set up a government-run public works department to build batteries um, in the way that Chinese SOEs work, nor rain free money down on, on their private businesses. But there's a lot that we can, and this is going back to our previous con discussion about strategic industrial policy. The reason we don't have this is because somebody else does strategic industrial policy. And if we feel for security, both national and climate reasons, we need it, we're going to need to have that our version of those same policies to be able to change that setting. The only, oh, sorry, Rory. The Close. only point I'd add from my perspective um, as a sort of non-battery expert but thinking about the strategy and policy of this more broadly is what does success look like for quad cooperation around batteries? Is it really about um, displacing one country from the supply chain? I wouldn't say so. I think it's about reducing sort of vulnerability and dependency on any one choke point in the supply chain. So the objective is to help um, add to competition and diversification in the value chains and, and come up with sort of um, an industrial geography that means that we can access the battery technologies we need and sufficient supply going forward. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. I'm going to go to a couple more questions from the, the group. I can do one more round of, I think, another three or four questions and then begin to, to wrap up. And I'm 
going to go to Gordon Flake if you're there, uh, Gordon, from the uh, the head of the Perth US Asia Centre. I am indeed, and I, I realize it's kind of strange for me to call all the way to Canberra to talk to my colleague Jeff here in town, but I'm in hotel quarantine, and I haven't seen Jeff in a month, and so this is my chance to get a couple of questions in. Um, Jeff, I, I really appreciated your, your last answer there about the need for strategic industrial policy, and yet even if we do get off the ball on that in, in very um, resistant environments, policy-wise in Washington and in, in, in Canberra, in particular towards government involvement in that front, it seems to me that government intervention is going to be largely symbolic. Uh, it, it'll be sending signals, but it's not going to actually drive the process. And the process is going to be driven by the corporate sector, by large corporate. And so can you give us a sense for the prospects for that within the Quad or also other partners in Japan and Korea as well, for the corporate sector that's likely to drive this process outside of China? And if not an individual company, which countries do you think are likely to provide those really strong demand signals and markets? Hmm. Now? Okay. Um, okay. Actually, I'll interrupt you there. Sorry. And I'll take a few more. So stock it away. That's um, an important one from your boss. Uh, so you better get that one right. Um, Ian McAllister, I think you had a question as well. Uh, not not so much a question, just just a comment that the importance of uh, industry being included as participants in the dialogue in the discussions. Um, my association, I represent CESA, the Consumer Electronic Suppliers Association, and our members include Panasonic's and Duracells and Energizers and so on. And I, I, I don't so fully understand what the Australian government's strategy is for batteries. Maybe you could explain that to me somehow. Um, very, but very clearly you get the message across that without industry involvement in this, it's not going to work. That's a really, a really good point, and I think we'll put that uh, as one that I will try to uh, encourage a, a response on from colleagues. I've got two last questions, and then we'll um, we'll give you uh, Jeff and Jen a chance to to to, uh, to reply. Uh, my colleague Will Stoltz from the National Security College had a somewhat provocative question. Thanks very much, Rory. Uh, yes, Will Stoltz here from the National Security College. My, my question somewhat relates to um, a point Jen made in, in her remarks. I guess what I'm interested in is putting ourselves in the, the shoes of being a, a small or developing nation in this context, um, in this, with this idea that Jeff mentioned about the weaponization of batteries. For, for small and developing nations, are they just going to see uh, one monopoly in exchange for another. So going from a kind of Chinese monopoly in exchange for the quad quad control of batteries and therefore is, is the quad partnership um, de-weaponizing batteries and getting rid of the risk of the, of the coercive use of batteries um, or is it just, just shifting one centre of power to, to a different group of parties or, or are you, when you look at the strategies, do you see a pathway for... Um, you know, de-risking the use of batteries in this way. Thank you. And last of all, um, it was a, an observation, I think, rather than a question, but I'd still be interested to hear from um, three uh, Raja, uh, Rahajo, three Rahajo, if you're there, because you uh, raised the question of whether, in fact, we should be focusing on batteries at all and whether, in fact, we shouldn't be prioritising uh, hydrogen uh, in, this, um, in this conversation. So if you're there, please uh, make your point. But if not, um, I'll go back to, uh, at this point, go to um, to Jeff and Jen. Cool. Thank, thanks, Rory. I might start um, with Will's question there. And, and this picks up on something that there's a long discussion around some of these risks involving China-US decoupling debate. Um, I don't think anyone's suggesting we need to, we can't get our batteries from China because it's insecure. In fact, if the world has to be increased manufacturing of batteries in tenfold in the decade to hit climate targets, there is no way we're going to get there without China. That, that is an essential contribution that China can make to global clean energy transition. But the, the strength of a, a, a weaponization, this risk, is a function of that monopoly. And if you have a situation where 90% of the middle is done in China, that becomes very powerful. 
you don't have to reduce that to zero. You could reduce it to a normal market where it was 30 or 40. And once you've got multiple supplies in the market, the ability to do that is lessened. So in effect, what we're really talking about deterrence rather than counteraction here is to just try and build enough diversity in that there's multiple suppliers and multiple buyers, and then it just operates like a normal market. And it's not in given China's scale in the world of its manufacturing prowess, it would be utterly normal for China to have 30 or 40% of the world market in some product, probably not 90, however. Um, and to then have this question about this industrial policy, um, some of you might be on the call might have come of, of, from my generation who when we went through going to Canberra and being young public servants, you were, you were in, inculcated with this thing called the Yellow Pages Theory of Government, which was if government looks wants something and they get up the Yellow Pages, this is how old it is because it was before smartphones, you got the big Yellow Pages out and you could find someone in the Yellow Pages who provided that service, government was not supposed to do it. Um, and this is really an interesting case because it's actually quite hard for Australia to, uh, in, in, in our systems, let go of those cultures and let go of that. And I, I don't say this lightly, strategic industrial policy will be much harder for us than it will be for a country like China. When there's state-owned enterprises, so if the Chinese government wants a battery factory built, they literally tell a company to do it and it gets done. Um, to, to, to pick up from Gordon's point, what we're really trying to do here is more like hydrology, trying to channel the flow of a commercial river to move in a different direction than it presently is, which means working on the margins and working with things around incentives. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do in that space to shape the set of commercial and political incentives for companies to still make those decisions, still do that leadership. It's private sector, but make a different set of commercial decisions than if we stood back and said, I can buy batteries in the yellow pages. I don't need to worry about where they come from. Jen. I'll just offer a couple of extra thoughts. So I think on the point about industrial policy too, of course, industrial policy can be very expensive for a country like Australia. It comes with great trade-offs for public expenditure in other areas and at times it can be inefficient, which is why there's a tendency to only undertake industrial policy sort of in the areas of greatest strategic or national security consequence. And we do see it in a defence industry context to that end. Um, so there's clearly very important considerations around um, what are those technologies that are most critical that might require approach like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very complex policy issue that can be costly. And I think when it's something that's done in partnership, like a quad context, perhaps you end up um, distributing sort of the costs of doing something like that more evenly. I think just on the point around industry engagement, I agree that industry is critical in this area and I think there's good examples in other areas of national security policy in particular where government has really built a strong um, architecture to engage with industry players. We've seen it in cybersecurity and we've also seen it in critical industry uh, critical infrastructure. So there's precedent, I think, for how government can work in a sort of public-private capacity to achieve um, outcomes for the country or sort of in a in a minilateral grouping like the Quad in partnership with industry. Thanks. Thank you. And I think um, just wondering, Jeff, the the question that uh, Gordon put about where you know where the money is or where the um, you know the, the, the corporates are perhaps state backed corporates are that that that, that, that are really interested in this space uh, is there anything else that either uh, you or Jen might add to the to the geography of that you know are we missing other potential partners here. Uh, no, part of it would would pick up on my early comments about size and scale is that. Particularly if, if you're in a tech policy space, you know, you will often gravitate towards the newest and best and cutting edge. So, and there's certainly some really interesting stuff being done in Australia by the Future Battery Industry Cooperative Research Centre on building cutting edge batteries that are way better than what we've currently got. But when you have a discussion with the corporate world, the, the thing that's really interesting from a climate perspective is how we're going to decarbonise the whole planet. Um, and that means consumers who are not going to be able to buy an EV for 
40, $50,000 in our currency at the moment. Um, and that's that scale that's there. So, and I think this is one of the reasons that kind of gets overlooked when we think critical tech, we think high tech, expensive, small market. But, but in terms of corporate money and where there's real interest is building, um, you know, fit for purpose transport systems for most of the developing world, which is where the climate lift is going, is going to be hardest to achieve for net, for net zero by 2050. Um, so it, it may not be cutting edge tech, but the scale is, is going to be such that there's a real opportunity there. And that really makes the case for why the quad's interesting, because it really, it, India brings that in, um, but lots of other countries in the world. There's certainly in our region, Indonesia would fit that, would fit that same bill. Um, Vietnam would fit that as well. And if you could establish that, there's no reason it would need to be done in an exclusive manner. And we're going to wrap up in just a moment. Um, any uh, final question or observation from you, Jane? Nothing further to add on that, Rory. Look, I one last question then to Jeff, which is uh, a, which is actually about making policy. It's about the architecture of government. It's about national security broadly defined, the national interest. You know, we've, as you say, we've had the Treasurer recently talk, I think as you both pointed out, um, uh, Jen and Jeff, the Treasurer has spoken about resilience and strategic competition in a speech where he could just as easily, easily have spoken about prosperity and um, economic reform. So it's a different landscape now, um, geoeconomic policy making, but what would be the ideal um, government decision-making architecture for this? Whose job should it be? Uh, Jeff, over to you. Mm. I think this is, these kind of issues um, and, and much of the National Security College's work across various other tech things points to the same conclusion as batteries here is that we really need to tear down a big wall between security and economics. Um, there has been a trip to tendency in Australian, you know, international policy that security issues belong to security agencies or the Department of Defence. And then there was this economic stuff, which meant promoting exports or bringing investment in. It kind of went to Austrade and, and, and they did what we call a trade promotion authority, authority function. So on one hand, we've got security agencies locking down critical tech systems. And on the other hand, Austrade are selling pineapples to Japan. Batteries, that doesn't work here. On the one hand, from a security point of view, this is fundamentally about, as we discussed, industrial policy and changing the incentives for companies in the private sector to do it. And from that trade promotion authority perspective, it's not simply about finding someone else to buy a little bit more Australian lithium or convincing a Japanese company to build a project in Australia because of that security overlay. And that's the reason why we care. And that's the reason why we're making this and not something else priority. Um, I think we really need structures within government and I you know when this really crosses departments where these things are I have this issue which ministry do I handball it to and there you're going to get it so there's going to need to be some kind of interdepartmental solution to this I know interdepartmental committees in Canberra is, is a shorthand for bureaucratic death but but taking that really seriously there there is there is no agency in Australia that can do this on its own and establishing a culture of working across that which is similar to a culture that exists in, uh, in in other countries as well, um, would be is really going to be essential if we're going to take that take that step. Thanks, Jeff. Jen, do you have anything to add? I mean, I know, I know you've been a, a policymaker uh, in in your time. Do you have anything to add on the on the policy side? Yeah, very briefly. I'm conscious of time. I think there is growing recognition within the Australian government about how to integrate some of these cross-cutting security and economics issues. And on technology, specifically PM&C, the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet last year established a critical technologies policy coordination office to bring together some of these strategic policy issues. Um, so I think that's one vehicle at least to kind of triage maybe where an, an issue like this could end up, but clearly it will require involvement from agencies like industry, treasury, as well as uh, home affairs and foreign affairs and trade. So it's very much a, a whole of government issue potentially in the way it's taken forward. Um, but the good thing is, and I can see some critical tech colleagues are, are online uh, tonight from the office, um, that there is a starting point for some of those whole of government structures to take these issues forward now, which is a really positive development. Well, thank you. I think we've had a really, thank you both. We've had a, a pretty fruitful conversation on a very broad national security theme and we haven't talked about guns or bombs and missiles or even submarines. 
much in the last hour. So it just is. do have batteries in them, Rory. The submarines. Yeah, well, uh, yes. Well, 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 well uh, nuclear submarines uh, may 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 have a somewhat um, somewhat different uh, technological edge. But um, so you know, we 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 we've had, I think, a conversation that's an example of the breadth of national security in this new era and the way certainly the college approaches it. I really commend. The, uh, the paper that Jeff's produced, but also the whole series of Quad Tech Network publications. Uh, and just f- full, full disclosure, I, I want to um, thank Jen and other colleagues, uh, Will Stoltz and others, for their role in, in editing and, and reviewing and, and stewarding that series. We've got three more events coming up in this um, in, in, in this category. So if uh, you are interested in what you heard tonight, don't forget, uh, keep an eye on our um Advertising, we've got on the 29th of October, Quad Techno Diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific. On the 4th of November, we're doing another event on the future of 5G governance. And then finally, Biotech in the Indo-Pacific on the 15th of November. All of these will be advertised. We want to see you back there. Please read the paper. Please join the conversation. Um, Thank you again now to um, to Jeff Wilson and Jen Jacket. Um, thanks to our speakers. Thanks to my colleagues. And we'll end it there. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.